Hey, good morning, now that the mic's on. Hey, glad you're here this morning. We're going to be in the book of Mark. If you want to grab your uh, Bible, we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to get back to our study in Mark. If you need a Bible, there should be a few Bibles on the chairs in front of you. And if you're using one of those Bibles, it's going to be on page 1143. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, just kind of so you know what, how we normally operate, we've taken a few breaks the last couple of weeks to do some special sermons, but our normal pattern is we like to work through a, a particular book of the Bible. The one we're working through right now is Mark, and so we're going to be in that for a while. We may take breaks here and there as events come up or things uh, that may be appropriate to uh, preach on instead for that Sunday come up, but uh, we're going to keep uh, working through the book of Mark this morning. Chapter 9 is where we'll be, and um, I got a confession to make to you guys this morning. Uh, everybody's phones go off. No, uh, no, uh, no video in this or anything like that, okay? All right, yeah, Terry's the only one allowed the video back there. I like, I, I want to be great. I like to be great. In fact, I, I even want to live a significant life. I do, and, and, it's, and it's not hard for me to seek out greatness and to seek, seek out living a significant life in different ways. Like, you know, as, as, a, as a dad, it's not hard for me to seek out uh, feeling great and being great by wanting my kids to do something really great so that it reflects back on me and I can be known as dad of the year or the best dad or, you know, or something like that. As a husband, I want to be great. You know, it's, it's not hard for me as a husband uh, to, to want to be great and to, to live significantly so that other people know that I'm great and I live significantly by the way I treat my wife or uh, romance my wife on the date once a year that we go on. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, as, as, a, as a pastor, I want to be great. You know, I want to preach great sermons. Uh, and it's not hard for me to want to be great and to seek greatness or to seek significance by the size of a church. It's not hard to get there. It's easy to get there because I want to be great. I want to be known as being great. Uh, as, as a military member, uh, I want to be great. And, and part of that is working my way up through the ranks. And if I'm not careful, all too easily, uh, the, the rank that I wear can get to my head. You know, I, I want to be great. And with greatness, with rank comes power and comes respect. I, I want that. You know, it, it's not hard for me to get there. As, as a son, it's not hard for me uh, to, to want to seek out that greatness to where I do something really well or, or I excel in something so that my parents can be proud of me and say they truly have a great son who lives a significant life. I want to be great. I seek out greatness. And I, and I bet you do the same thing, too. I, I bet that's not a, a foreign struggle to you. I mean, as a, as a mom, some of you, you want to be great as a mom. You, you want to live a significant life as a mom. And sometimes that's, that's hard to do, but sometimes you'll seek that out. You want to be known as, as the mom who, who perfectly disciplines their kids because you are the masterful disciplinarian. And yet at the same time, you're the, the teacher, the education provider for your kid. And, and your kids always show up in nicely dressed clothes and they behave perfectly and politely. You want to be known as great. And so those struggles can Slip, slip in there all too easily. As a student, uh, you want to be great and you want to be known as being great. And so it's not too hard for you to get to that spot where the grades is what defines you. The grades are what you want to be known as being great uh, by or the clubs that you get in or the awards that you win because you want to be great. You want to be known as being great. As an employee or, or as, a, as a boss, you want to be known as being great. And so you, you try to excel at your job, but you do so so that others will see you being great. And maybe you want to work your way up and get higher pay or get a promotion or 
whatever the case may be, but you do that because you want to be known as being great. You want to live a significant life. We all, we all feel that in one area of our life or multiple areas of our life. But here's the question I'm going to put before us this morning. Does, does Jesus have anything to say about being great? I mean, Jesus, one of the greatest men, well, the greatest man who has ever walked this earth, uh, the, the most moral individual that the world will ever know, uh, the most masterful teacher, a miracle worker, does he have anything to say about being great? And so that's what we're going to see this morning in the book of Mark chapter 9. I'm going to give it to you up front. Here's what Jesus is going to be saying to us this morning. He's going to say, if you want to live a significant life as a disciple of Jesus, if you want to live a significant life as a disciple of Jesus, you have to learn to become insignificant. If you want to live a significant life as a disciple of Jesus, you have to learn to become insignificant. So look with me at Mark chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 30. They went out from there and they passed through Galilee. But Jesus did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand this statement. They were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum. After Jesus was inside the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they were silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. After he sat down, he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So Jesus is with his disciples. Now, it, it's that point in Jesus' life and his ministry where he's no longer really seeking out the, the crowds. I mean, the, the crowds always sought him out, but there was a time in Jesus' ministry where he was intentionally traveling to different towns, different cities, different regions, so that he could teach to the people, so that he could do the, the, the signs and the miracles that he came to do that would authenticate his message, so that, that he could point others to the kingdom and reveal who he was as the Messiah, the promised one. Of, of God. This is now a point, though, in Jesus' life where he's no longer pursuing that. Because at this point, by this point, it's been, it's been a couple years at least, and now Jesus has already been rejected. He's put himself out there. He's put his message out there. He's taught. And now the religious leaders, the, 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 the people who were spiritually responsible for the nation of Israel, the people who should have most been ready and looking for this promised one, Jesus, they've rejected him. They've already now said instead of Jesus doing works and miracles by the power of God, they've said he's doing them by Satan. And so now they're plotting to kill him. They're calling him a blasphemer. And so it, it's come to that point where they're no longer uh, interested. They, they, they've dismissed him, and Jesus knows that. And so now he's shifted his attention because he, he knows full well that the very mission he came to do is fast approaching. And so he now turns his attention to his closest followers, the 12. We call them the disciples. Uh, oftentimes, starting in the book of Acts, we call them the apostles. And so he's going to start teaching them more intently. He's going to start focusing in his teaching. And so he starts with, in verses 30 through 32, reminding them he came to die. He came to die. 
Now, just a chapter earlier, in chapter 8, Jesus, for the first time, very explicitly said this to his closest followers, where he told them uh, he was headed to Jerusalem, and there he would be betrayed, he would be beaten, he would suffer, he would die. And, and you may, may or may not remember the reaction that the disciples gave him, particularly Peter. Peter, looking at the other disciples as they're listening to Jesus, looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, stop talking about that. You can't say these kinds of things. To which Jesus then said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Right? It was not news they wanted to hear. These, these men, these 12, they're, they're following Jesus. They have this understanding of him. He's a king. He's coming to bring in a kingdom. And their idea of the kingdom is only partially right. They have a, a, a right idea of the kingdom, that it will be here on earth and that Jesus will be that, that physical king. But they don't realize that there's a spiritual element to it as well. And they don't realize that Jesus first must suffer and die before his kingdom comes. And so they're not really willing to accept that. They don't want to accept that. And so in verses 30 through 32, as, as Jesus is explaining uh, that he must come and die, uh, we see in verse 32, they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. You see, they've heard him say this before and they don't understand what he means. They don't understand that Jesus came so that he could die. They don't understand that when, when Mark says the Son of Man in verse 31 came to be handed over to men, the irony in that very statement. See, the Son of Man, that's a phrase that Jesus would use of himself oftentimes, and it's rooted back in the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel. It's part of a prophecy. And remember, one part of a prophecy is that it can tell the future before it takes place. And one of those things that the Old Testament tells us, a prophecy about Jesus, is that he'll be called the Son of Man. And that's Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. And so he says the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. The very one who came to save humanity is going to first be delivered into the hands of humanity so that he can be killed for humanity. See, there was no escaping the cross. There's no, there's no circumventing that. There's no way around that. Jesus came for that very purpose. And it was Satan's plan to try to get him to go around that. You may remember when Jesus was in the, in the wilderness being tempted, one of the things that Satan said to him is, look at all these kingdoms as he stood on the top of the temple. Look at all of them. If you just bow down to me, I'll give them to you right now. See, here's the reality. Those are all going to belong to Jesus anyway. And Satan says, I'll give them to you early. I'll hand them over to you right now if you just bow down and worship. And Jesus responds back to him, rebukes him, because he knows he cannot accept those without first going to the cross. There's no getting around dying for Jesus. The disciples don't get that. So we go on then, and we look at verses 33. Now, they're on this journey. They're going back to the, to, to the town of Capernaum. And, and, and along the way, the, the 12, or at least a group of them, they're intently discussing something. Now, Mark doesn't tell us right up front what they're discussing. We get that later. If you read the same story in Matthew, he tells us right up front what they're discussing. But when they get to Capernaum, they enter the house, and Jesus sits down, and he calls them to himself. He says, hey, what were you guys discussing? I don't know about you, but uh, whenever I'm reading about Jesus, and I see Jesus ask somebody a question about what they're thinking, about what they said, or what they're doing, uh, it almost brings a little laugh to, my, to, to, to me, because you know where that's headed. You see, Jesus knows what people are thinking. He knows what, they are, what they're talking about. And oftentimes when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he really wants to know because he doesn't know. It's because he's about to bring something that's going to sting. All right? So he says, what were you guys talking about? 
Now, I can readily identify with where the disciples are at this point, and, and you can too. See, um, just think for a moment. Nobody's going to tell on you, okay? Just think for a moment. Have you ever had a time where uh, you said something you shouldn't have said? Uh, you were talking in a group about someone that you shouldn't have been talking about. Uh, you did something that you shouldn't have done. And then you all of a sudden, in that moment, it's like you're caught. Where your parent or the teacher or your boss, they walk in and say, what were you doing? Or, you know, you walk into the room and all of a sudden you stop talking because the person you're talking about walks in the room. What are you guys talking about? Every single one of us. What do we do? I plead the fifth right? I'm not going to answer. What? If, if I just hold out long enough, okay, maybe this is just me. But if I just hold out long enough, there's going to be someone who's going to speak up because they can't stand the awkward silence, right? And then I don't have to be the one doing the, the speaking or lying or anything like that, right? Just hold off. Just hold off quietly. Someone's going to speak. Amen, there he goes. I got someone who, can, who understands what, what that's like. This is what they do. Jesus, Jesus says in verse 33, after Jesus was inside the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Look at 34. But they were silent. Why were they silent? It's not because, you know, they, they didn't know what they were talking about. Look, it says, they were silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They were feeling sheepish. They knew the topic of their, their conversation was ridiculous, was wrong, was inappropriate. They knew as soon as they put that out there and said, well, actually, Jesus, we were kind of wondering, uh, which one of us is the greatest? I mean, even if you do think like that, even if you do feel that way, even if you think you're the greatest, you at least learn how to look humble, right? I mean, you le- at least learn how to play the part and you say, well, actually, Jesus, we were just kind of wondering what our roles are going to look like. I mean, you'd kind of soften or something, right? No, these guys just, they don't say a word because they know the conversation they had is not appropriate. Now, we don't know why they were having that conversation. Uh, I mean, it, it could be Jesus just talked about dying. And, and, and so maybe some of them are starting to say, okay, this is the second time he said he's going to die. Well, who's going to take his place? Who's going to take this movement that's been started and be the next leader? Maybe, maybe that's how that conversation came up. Um, you know, just before these verses, the last time we were in Mark, we looked at, at the story where, where Jesus takes three of his disciples, three of the 12, and he takes them up to a mountain. And there he reveals them, his glory to them, gives them a little bit of sneak peek of what the kingdom will be like. Maybe because of that, maybe the conversation got started. Well, well is, it, is, it, is it Peter? Is it James? Is it John? Are one of them going to be the greatest? Maybe, maybe they were having that discussion or started it. We don't really know why they started the conversation. Maybe they just flat out uh, don't, don't, they're disregarding Jesus' talk about death and they just have a hunger and a desire to be great. They want rank. They want to know when the kingdom comes, where, where are we going to sit? We've given up this much, what are we going to get? Bottom line is they're having this discussion about being great. Who's the greatest? What's going to be our role? How, how, how are we going to be shown as significant? So Jesus, as he often does, um, you know, if it was me, now I, I try not to do this, but here's what I would want to do, right? If that's what they told me, if I'm Jesus, okay, that's a stretch, but if I'm Jesus and they say to me, hey, we were talking about who is the greatest, I'd want to lick into them at that moment and teach them to be humble, right? I mean, I, I would want to, uh, and, and, and unfortunately, this is not good parenting philosophy, but sometimes I, I do this, okay? So this is another confession, but this is what I do sometimes, so my kid thinks that uh, they, they know better than me, what I want to do. I want to show them that they don't know better than me, right? So there's a little bit of a, I'm going to put you in your place right now. 
right? That, that's not a great motive. Don't do that, all right? But that's what I do in my, in my flesh when I'm a parent and someone bows up against me who's, you know, much younger than I am and they think they know better than me. I want to put you in your place. See, that's what I might have done if I was Jesus. Put you in your place. See, Jesus is much better than that. He's, he's much more compassionate. He's much wiser than that. Look what he does. Look what he does in verse 35. So he sits down and he calls the 12 to himself. This is now going to be a teaching moment. Jesus sits down. He's going to teach them. And he says this, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Okay, disciples, you're talking about being greatest. Who's the greatest? Who's going to be first? Here's what he says to them. Whoever wants to be the greatest, he must be last. And he must be a servant of all. Now, that would have blown their minds. Because, see, what Jesus has just done is he's taken this whole leadership paradigm that that they would have known, and he's flipped it. It's no longer that you are great if you achieve the top rank. If you're the general, you're the greatest. That's not it. It's no longer that you're the greatest if if you're a superior and you have people underneath you. That's not it. It's not that you're the greatest if you have the most money, if you have the most wealth, the most power. That's not it. Most slaves? No, that's not it. Most followers? No, that's not it either. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you have to be last. And then you have to be a servant of all. He takes this paradigm shift and says, you want to be at the top, you've actually got to go all the way back to the bottom. You've got to place others before you. You've got to consider others before you. And then you've actually got to serve them. And he says, be a servant of all, right? He, he doesn't say, just serve those who, in serving them, they're going to see that and then promote you to where you want to get, right? We, we have a way of taking a verse like this and creating kind of a, a reverse formula. Okay, if I want to be the greatest, then I've got to be last. So I want to be great. And so I'm going to go put myself in the last position so that I can be up. I, um, throughout the year, this year, I've been trying to work with my oldest daughter, uh, on developing some early basic leadership skills in her. And uh, one of the things they do at kindergarten class that she had was they have snack day. And whoever brings a snack is the class leader for the day. They get to lead the line. They get to do special errands and, and whatnot. And that's, that's a really neat thing for, for her, as it would be for any kid. And so there were several times when this came up throughout the year where we'd be driving to uh, school in the morning, and, and it's her day to be the leader. And she's excited because she wants to be the leader. She gets to be the line leader. She gets to be the, the one who does all the errands. And so, you know, in, in that moment, I'm taking that time to uh, share this verse with her. You know, you know, Jesus says about leaders is if you want to be great, you've got to be last. You know, the first shall be last. And so I tried to unpack that on a kind of a six-year-old level about what that means. And so I'm trying to explain to her, you can actually be a leader every other day of the week. And just because you're at the front of the line doesn't make you a leader. You can be a leader all the other days, and the way you do that is by serving others, by, by putting others before you. You know, so then I, and I drop her off, and I'm feeling kind of proud, you know, because I've just passed on this wisdom to my young Padawan, you know? And I'm thinking, man, this is pretty good. Six-year-old, first shall be last. last. God, that's just a great moment you brought up there, you know? So uh, a, f- a few days go by, and I, and I hear uh, her and my other daughter playing, you know, so a six-year-old and an almost four-year-old playing. And uh, it kind of got to a point where I could tell it was getting tense, so that the frustrations were rising. And uh, the situation was that uh, the oldest was not getting what she wanted. She wasn't, she wasn't getting her way. She wanted to go first. And so as, as I hear that escalating out of, out in the other room, I hear these words come out of my daughter's mouth. To my four-year-old, she says, 
The Bible says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And you're making me go last, so that means I should get to go first. <laughs> Parenting fail. I've never had it twisted like that before, right? But don't we do that? So, so we kind of look at it and we say, okay, what I really want is to be great. And so the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to pretend like I'm lowly. And so we, we feign this false humility and we place ourselves in a lowly position with the hopes and the desires that we actually get promoted. And that's not at all what Jesus is saying. It's not a formula he's given. He's going after an attitude. He's going after a heart. He's going after humility. See, it, it shouldn't be about us wanting to be the greatest, the top, the ranked one. Instead, it's about our heart, our humility, and we should seek instead to serve others. We should be willing to put down our desires, our ambitions, and let others go before us. If someone else wants to play with a toy, well, maybe we should let them play with the toy, right? Easier said than done, I know. Um, but that's, that's what Jesus is going after. You want to be great? Learn how to be last. You want to be great? Learn how to serve. Okay, so he flips it for them because what they would have been used to seeing in a Roman uh, society is Caesar, top official, king, ruler, some somewhat demigod, you know. Uh, in, in, in the military, you got the rank structure. They would have been used to seeing that. You, you would have been used to seeing people who are wealthy and, and positions of power with, with multiple slaves. Those are the ones that were oftentimes considered the greatest. But Jesus comes along and this movement that he starts that became known as the way in the book of Acts that we call Christianity today, it, it, it just got flipped. And so what happens is Christianity doesn't elevate who the world elevates. Instead, Christianity, the, the, the teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus elevates those who are insignificant, those who are, are last of all, those who are servants of all. Just in case his disciples didn't get that, he gives them a very physical illustration. So look with me, verse 36 and 37. So he's just said, if you want to be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. Then he, he's in this home, remember, and there's, there's some children in this home. He takes a child. He brings the child right there in the middle and then brings the child into his arms. Okay, that by itself is significant. See, we live in a society where... Uh, if a child is elevated, and there, there are some cultures that do elevate it here in, in the United States, they elevate the child, but they elevate the child because of natural reasons, because of, of, of uh, you know, a welfare reasons, because of adoption, uh, you know, those types of things, they, because of the good of the child, they, they, the, you know, humanitarian type of things. They elevate a child. Jesus' motivation is completely different. See, the, the society they were in did not elevate the child at all. In fact, the child was one of the most insignificant people in society. They had nothing they could contribute, nothing they could bring to the table. They couldn't be good citizens because they hadn't yet grown to the age to be a citizen. They weren't educated yet. Until they reached that point, they really could bring nothing. They had to be taught. They were insignificant. Some of the most lowly in the society. You don't give your time to them. You wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be on a path to greatness if you gave your time to them. So then why would Jesus take the child while he's teaching adults, adults who can get the concepts that he's teaching on an adult level, and then bring a child, bring him into his arms, and then say this, 
in verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Jesus is not in this case. If you read Matthew, Matthew, he says, you have to become like a child, which is what we oftentimes think about Jesus and children. Oh, Jesus says we're supposed to have faith like a child. He does, but not here. Here in Mark, Jesus takes the child and he says, you want to be first, you've got to be last. Here's what it looks like. Whoever welcomes one of these little children welcomes me. In other words, the child here is being representative of those who are insignificant, those who are not great. He's taking the most insignificant person in society and bringing them in and says, you've got to welcome these. You've got to welcome them, meaning you've got to show them kindness. You've got to show them compassion. You've got to make time for them. You've got to invest in them, pour in them. You have got to welcome them. And if you do that, then you welcome me. He takes a child and he looks at adults who have just been arguing about being the greatest and he says, welcome them. Now, I don't know about you, but as a teacher, here's, here's a struggle I've had growing up as a teacher in my, my college years. And I can remember uh, one of the pastors saying to me once, um, if you're a teacher, if you've got the gift of teaching, you should be able to teach anybody, kids or adults. Okay, now, I, for those of you of teachers uh, that are particularly teachers towards adults or older, older uh, kids, you'll get this. Um, it's a lot easier in some ways to teach adults. In fact, as, as a person who, who has gone to school specifically for this kind of stuff, it's a real uh, attractive thing to be able to teach adults. You know, you go into a seminary classroom and you ask guys who they wanna, what they want to do, who they want to teach. The majority of them will not say, I want to be a kids minister. I want to invest in kids. They're going to tell you I want to be a pastor. Actually, the glory, the glory job these days is I want to be a seminary professor. Why? Because we, we really want to talk about those things that are um, really uh, detailed, those things that really are, are kind of more on the intellectual level, the deeper things about the Bible. And those things are great and those things are, are fun to talk about. But that's the most attractive thing for a teacher. Uh, you know, and, and if you're teaching adults, you can kind of have conversations about topics that you can't really have with a, a kid. You can kind of get into deeper things that you can't really get into with a kid. I mean, you've got to spend extra time with a kid and you've got to repeat yourself over and over again. Well, I guess you've got to do that with adults too. You know, but, but it's just, it's more attractive for, for some people to teach adults. It's easier. It takes less energy. Uh, in some ways, you might say it could take less prep if you decide to approach it that way. Because listen, if, if you want to be a great teacher, in general, most people don't think about teaching kids. They wouldn't think about spending their time teaching, teaching kids. In fact, if they are teaching kids, what are they doing? They're using it as a stepping stool, which happens a lot right? Uh, you think about youth, okay? The, the middle school and high school. A lot of times, and this, this is not a bad practice, but if the mentality is there, that is what I, what I don't necessarily agree with. When a person goes into a youth minister position as a stepping stone to get to a senior pastor type of position. I don't want to see that. I would rather see people who are passionate about these youth and these kids who want to be there and invest their life and stay there. I don't want someone who's going to be looking ahead, when can I move up? When can I move up? When's the next best opportunity? Why? Because in that kind of mentality, they look at the kids, they look at the youth, and they think insignificant. I'm just going to put my time in. I'm, I'm, just, I'm wasting time here. Jesus takes the kid and he says, you welcome him. You show kindness, you show compassion to the insignificant, then you're actually welcoming me. So he says to do that is just as if you were welcoming me. He elevates 
the insignificant, and he flips what they would have thought about being great, turns it on their head. And then he says, he goes on, he says, and by the way, if you welcome me, it's not really me you're welcoming. You're actually welcoming the one who sent me, which is the Father, which was part of what Jesus did the whole time he was here. See, Jesus, fully God, fully God, decided to, to step down from that, that level where he was at. He didn't, he didn't give up any of his godness, but he decided, you know what, I don't have to stay up here and be uh, where, where it's all lofty-like for God when there's people down there who are lost in sin. Instead, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, he didn't consider his equality with God as something he had to hold on to. Instead, he willingly gave up that, that position without, without changing who he was, without losing anything about him so that he's still fully God. But what he did was he took on willingly some limitations. He put a body on. God doesn't have a body. He put a body on. He took on the corrupted sinful flesh so that he could come, be like us, live among us, die for us. He modeled what it looks like when he says, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the last. Because guess what? God is the greatest. There's no one above God. Instead, he steps down and he makes himself like us, his very creation. And he, he comes and he makes himself as insignificant. Now, Jesus is talking about children. Okay? He is specifically talking about children here. But by way of application, we, we can draw that out to insignificant things, people. Right? So if you were to play this out in our society, children are your first application. If you want to apply this verse today, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be last, you have to be a servant of all. And one of the things that Jesus says is you welcome children, you give them kindness, you show them compassion. If, if you want to apply that today, the most obvious way to do that is to get involved with kids. Get involved with kids. Welcome them in. Show them kindness. Show them compassion. Now, that looks different ways. It could look as a kid is coming by, right? We, we've got different ways as adults we can talk to kids, right? The majority of us, the way we talk to kids is like this. Okay? What, talk back to me here. What does this communicate to a kid? Yes, authority, which we rightfully have, right? Especially if you're the parent of the guy. You rightfully have, but sometimes being the greatest means taking your rightful authority, choosing not to exercise it, and instead coming down to their level, right? I still have full authority, but I don't have to exercise that. Instead, when I come down to their level, what I communicate to that kid is you matter to me, and I'm getting eyeball to eyeball with you. That's different, that's different. That's one thing we can do. You know, we've got programs here that would give you opportunities to interact with kids on, on a regular basis. Some of them are, are coming up. Uh, you know, we've got the fishing derby in two weeks. You know what the fishing derby is all about, right? Kids. Kids. And so there's going to be opportunities. If you've never been to this before or if you've not signed up, you've got opportunities to walk around these lakes. And you've got kids fishing. Some of them have parents with them. Some of them have dads with them. Some of them don't. And there are a lot of single moms bringing young boys, young girls, and they need help. They need help. And you know what? One of the best things to be able to do at the fishing derby is to be able to get down there with a kid and help them with their hook, help them with a fish. If you know anything about fishing, you do something to to show them. You're at a way station and you're helping them. You are now interacting with kids and you're showing them kindness and you're showing them compassion. 
Vacation Bible school's coming up, you know, and, and there's lots of volunteer positions needed for that. But that week, those four days are all about kids. Now, there's lots of positions you can get in. I would encourage you, if you've not already signed up for one, talk to Nelaine Monroe about that. If there's any positions left where you can find ways to get interacting with those kids, that's where, that's where it's at. You see, because uh, when you actually get down and you're interacting with those kids, now you're, now you're really starting to feel like, what does it mean to show them kindness and compassion? And I'm going to say this to you guys, men in here. We need more men interacting with those kids. We need more men. We've got a great, a great um, group of women who will volunteer and always do, and we do have guys who volunteer, but I'm talking about getting in with the kids, interacting with those kids. Because I'm telling you, there's kids that show up that don't have dads or their dads are absent or their dads are not the best, okay? And they need to see men who love the Lord and who will show that love to them. They need to see right the right kind of affection given and shown to them by a man. There's an opportunity to do that, to welcome those kids in. Uh, on a regular basis, we've got Sunday morning nursery and kids groups where you can get on a rotation. You can talk to Holly. You can talk to uh, Ellen about those things. Those are opportunities for you to do something that seems insignificant, right? Because think about what you're doing, especially if you're in a nursery, right? You're just holding babies. At least you think that's what you're doing, Okay? You're doing so much more when you go in there and hold a baby or you get on the ground with a baby. What you're doing, even if they can't compute what you're doing, you are now showing them love. That's the earliest way that we can show kids the love of God. Loving them, interacting with them, holding them, making sure they're loved and they're cared for. You don't know. Some of the kids that we get maybe on some Sundays, maybe that's the first time all that week they've seen that. You don't know. You're doing something that I know in many people's minds seems insignificant. But Jesus says you want to be the greatest, you've got to be last. And you've got to be a servant to all. Uh, we've got Wednesday night programs that kick up in the fall and the spring, and they've got opportunities for kids. The same thing, nursery. And they've got kids, uh, the Houston kids up in the, the kids area. Opportunities for you to interact life on life with some of these kids and where you can show kindness and compassion to those kids. You've got once-a-month opportunities with mops. They have mopettes where these young moms, they come and they bring their kids and they need, a, they need a couple of hours where they can interact with other moms about being moms. And they need to not be able to think about their kids. They need to know their kids are secure, they're safe, they're being loved and cared for, and that's where mopettes comes in. And that's, that's once a month, every second Thursday, fall and spring. You have an opportunity to not only bless moms, but to interact and welcome in kids. Uh, you, you've got uh, Tuesday morning in the fall and spring, we've got a, a Bible study and we've got y- some young moms who would love to come to that Bible study. And if they want to come to that Bible study, childcare is a must. You have an opportunity to become uh, the last, to be a servant to all, something maybe you don't want to do. I know you've got other things you'd love to do, but in doing that, you're not only serving those moms, now you're interacting with kids, you're welcoming them in. Uh, we've also got a tutoring program coming up this summer. First time this is ever going to happen, as far as I know. And, and so there's opportunities to interact with kids. And I saw in the bulletin this morning, there's five slots still available. And if you want to know more about that, uh, Gayla Thompson is who you want to talk to. And her contact's in there. And there's an opportunity now. You're going to be interacting with kids on a very real level. You get to welcome them in. Show them kindness. Show them compassion. Not all of you are going to work with kids, I understand that. But there's other things, other insignificant people that you need to be aware of because Jesus says if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the last. And that means if you want to live a significant life, you've got to learn to become insignificant 
which means paying attention to those people that you think are insignificant. And so here's a, a few probing questions for you. If you're a student and you're in school and you go to lunch, if you don't leave the campus, who do you sit with? Who do you sit with? Do you sit with, with the, the, the group you always sit with because they're safe, they're comfortable, they know you? Or do you see the person who's by themselves that day? Do you go sit with them? If you're here at church and we have either a Wednesday night gathering or a Sunday after, after church lunch, uh, who do you go sit with? Do you go and sit with the group you always sit with because they're safe, you, you want to catch up? Or do you, when you see there's a new family or you see that there's a family by themselves or the mom with, with all the kids or, or, or the, the loner over there, do you go to them instead and sit with them and visit with them? Which means you have to forego something you want to do so that you can serve someone else. Jesus would call that becoming the last, servant to all. Some of you in here this morning, maybe you feel like that insignificant person. Maybe, maybe as I'm describing, hey, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the last, and you've got you to give your attention to insignificant people. Maybe you're thinking, I am that person. I am insignificant. Maybe, that, maybe you know people like that, kids with disabilities, people with disabilities, grown adults with disabilities. Our, our society... If they're not uplifting it for humanitarian reasons, they're up, they're, they, 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 they discount them. But Jesus would say, we don't elevate the insignificant because of humanitarian reasons. It's much deeper than that. We do that. We become the last. We pay attention to the insignificant because that's exactly what Jesus did. Exactly what he did when he came and lived among us so that he could die for us. He came to those that, comparison to God, insignificant. We are his creation, and yet he came to us. And so the gospel motivates the way we live. It's not just something we believe to get saved. It continues to motivate the way we live. It should change us. It should change the way we view things. It should change what we think about being great. So if that's you, if you find yourself feeling like you are the insignificant, I hope you're feeling encouraged this morning because Jesus elevates the insignificant. He sees them. He pays attention to them because that's what God has done his entire creation. He sees those who are widowed, those who are orphans, those who are oppressed. That's just God. That's the type of God who loves us and who gave himself for us. So we all want to be great. We all have ideas about how that looks, how to seek it. Jesus would say, if you want to live a significant life as a disciple of Jesus, you've got to learn to become insignificant. And can you imagine what that would be like if we all took that attitude? If we all decided, you know what, instead of seeking out my own ambition, instead of seeking out what I want to do, instead of trying to elevate myself and trying, and trying to be seen by others, instead I'm going to put myself lower. I'm not talking about, you know, lowering your self-esteem, beating yourself up. I'm saying you willingly put yourself in a lower position. You willingly, you willingly put others before yourself. You seek to serve those who are insignificant. Can you imagine if we start doing that? One, the, the, the number of people that would be reached that aren't being reached now. Because if all of us take that and we start saying, God, I want to be a servant. I want to be a servant. And he opens our eyes to those around us. 
Can you imagine the type of impact we could have as a church that other churches could have if they were to do the same thing? The type of people and, and the, the, the extent that we could reach them? Can you imagine the, the way this place would feel when, when people showed up and they knew this is a place that doesn't judge based on outward appearances, that doesn't judge based on the way the rest of the world judge? This is a place that accepts people as they are because they know their God accepted them as they are and then loves them and wants to see them change as a result of that love. And it's indiscriminatory. Nobody's exempt from it. We don't just pay attention to the wealthy. We don't just pay attention to those who are most influential, those who have certain gifts, those who come from certain backgrounds, certain neighborhoods. We pay attention to everyone God brings here. It'd be quite a place. Any church, any church were to get that, the whole church got that. Man, that'd be quite a place. In fact, that's why Jesus said, against the, the church, the gates of hell cannot even stand. The church is supposed to be an agent of change. And it starts by us laying down our desire to be greatest by seeking to be last. And so, Father, um, that's completely opposite from what everyone else would tell us uh, who don't know you. And even uh, those who uh, have taken this idea from Jesus and maybe twisted it, uh, Lord, uh, it's impure sometimes. And so we first pray that you would help us to be humble, that you would search us, God, because it's not beyond us. It's not beyond our manipulation tactics to be able to take something like this where you're really after about the humility and instead we still make it about our greatness and we just reverse, reverse it into a formula. God, would you uh, show us the wickedness that lies within us? And God, change us from the inside by the power of the Spirit that you give us when we place our trust in Christ. Change us, God. And then I pray that you would open our eyes to uh, those who are seemingly, to us, insignificant. Those who we would consider it's a waste of time to, to give attention. Those who we would consider as not worthy of whatever it is we have to offer. And Father, for our kids that you have been bringing to this church, would you allow us the opportunities to continue to pour into them, to show them your love, that they would learn what it looks like to be a godly woman, a godly man, a godly wife, a godly husband, all of that from the people they see here at this church because the people at this church are getting down on their level and are interacting with them and are welcoming them in. God, help us when we get caught up with ourselves. It's all too easy for us to do. Remind us of our great need of grace, which every single one of us need it. God, there are some here this morning who are still in need of that grace. They need to know that you love them, that you have sent Christ to die for them so that they can be back in a relationship with you. God, I pray that you'd open their eyes this morning that you would remove any veils they have, that you would show them how compassionate of a God you are, how great you are, but yet how personal you are. And if that's you, all that God requires of us is that we believe, that we respond in faith to what he has done through Christ. That means changing your mind from whatever it is you're trusting now and placing it all on Christ. If you were a gambling person, it'd be all on Christ. So God, I pray that you would do your work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Your God sees the insignificant.
and he moves toward them. So go and do the same. Move toward those who are insignificant. And do it in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you next week.